bullshit every year. We dig the snow away and Antarctica puts the snow back. Feels like dedicated demonstration of entropy. Good season though. Got a lot of spots hadn't been to before. Met some cool folks. Caught, finally caught up with Paul Bruin. That's Stanley. Eight years since he moved there, ten years since I saw him. And we're still cracking dumb jokes like we hadn't seen each other since yesterday particularly loved that he remembered the Illustrator 2000. What else is news? Oh, I met Victor, the first Vostok Nietzsche of my acquaintance. You'll hear from him later. Get the diesel burning first. Welcome back to the dive hut, listeners. More fucking snow. It gets in through the tiniest gaps. But at least the accumulation shows you where you need to start looking for those gaps, pointing out the structural flaws like an icy fingered snitch. So, the hut's cold-soaked and I'm tired and have a lot of shoveling ahead of me, so while I get this place cleared out and set the diesel stove going, I'm going to give the hard yards of narrating a miss and instead offer you some pre-recorded material featuring my colleague and friend, Victor Serov. Victor is the first veteran of an overwinter at Vostok station that I've met, and when you hear his story, you'll understand why the noun Vostok Nietzsche is used to describe the small number of people who share that pedigree. And Victor, you have extensive experience in Antarctica. Uh, can you just give give us a quick overview of your Antarctic career? I came to Antarctica in uh, 1982, in 1981 to be exact, for wintering at the Soviet at the time Antarctic Research Station, Novolazarevska. My field of occupation was uh, geophysics. I uh, managed uh, the recordings of uh, magnetic variations and also my responsibility was filming auroras. We had all sky camera and the, we filmed uh, auroras at this station and also some uh, ionospheric tasks. At the time was the filming on actual chemical film or video tape? Uh, that, uh, that was filmed on the film. Right. At that time we had no this option. Okay. So, so uh, we had uh, just normal 
film camera and, and a fisheye lens on the top. And the equipment was heated, so there were no problems with the equipment. And that's a, a coastal station, Nova, Nova? Yeah, it's uh, more or less coastal. It is uh, 100 away from the edge. There is an uh, ice shelf 100 uh, kilometers away from the station I see. in the sea. But uh, our station was set on the uh, hills, on land. And so this land, if you remove the ice shelf, this will be the coast. I see. That's why we say coastal station. And uh, so the next, uh, the next was uh, uh, my guiding expedition. Uh, I showed in this presentation with uh, novices, complete novices, people uh, who had uh, no uh, background, polar background, and uh, we traveled from Hercules Inlet to the South Pole on Millennium, and it took us uh, 64 days, covering 1,200 kilometers. And uh, people, they had a very, very good experience during this expedition, and some of them, they also ventured uh, to cross uh, the Arctic Ocean to the North Pole, and uh, one of the, our participants, Fiona Thonewell, at that time was the first woman to make a fastest solo from coast to the South Pole. So there's been a lot of... Yeah, they, uh, they got lots of experience during this expedition and they could continue their dreams. And the next, after that, the next was... Uh, uh, let me see... Uh, no, before that, it's uh, Vostok wintering. It's uh, 1989-1990. Then this uh, expedition, uh, guiding expedition. After that, in uh, 2006, uh, I was invited to head the Antarctic company based in Cape Town. I was a general manager of this company. Between uh, 2006 and uh, 2012, and we organized uh, expeditions, private expeditions to the Antarctic continent. Most of our clients were mountaineers because uh, our station is based at uh, Queen Maud Land, fantastic mountains for uh, alpine climbing, rocks. Uh, popping out from the ice, very high and steep, and also the vicinity of uh, penguin colonies attracted people to go there, and also the possibility uh, to travel to the South Pole. And during these years, uh, I was uh, also on board of the expedition uh, first travel from the coast uh, to South Pole, successful, on vehicles. Uh, we used uh, Arctic trucks, uh, Toyotas. The company in Iceland, they converted uh, Toyota Hilux 
to Antarctic <laughs> to Antarctic vehicle. They changed the wheels. The wheels were maybe one meter high. And also they changed the gear. They uh, put up uh, the second gear to reduce the speed. So more, more yeah, power. Yeah, more power to give more power. And uh, that was in uh, 2007. 2007. And uh, when we made it, uh, the other challenge for uh, people was uh, South Pole race, but that was uh, the race uh, the last 700 kilometers from the pole. So using vehicle support, we brought equipment and people uh, to 80, 83 and something degrees to ski to the South race. There was a, a big team. 15 or uh, 20 people, I don't remember right now, competing. Who, who will be the first <laughs> to reach the South Pole? And this uh, quest was repeated the next, the next year, another team. And uh, of course I was involved uh, in all those reconnaissance tourists to come to Antarctica so I spent many years in Antarctica and while you were managing logistics from Cape Town that was largely um, based on Aleutian 76 aircraft uh, you know we had uh, elements of logistics already set in this part of Antarctica Cape Town is a very nice place to start from and it's uh, 4,000 kilometers to Antarctic continent, to Nova Station. And at Nova, Nova Station, we had already Blue Ice Runway, well maintained by the uh, Russian Antarctic Expedition. And uh, also, of course, this uh, aircraft flight, they supported national programs of different countries, of uh, Br uh, British, Holly Bay, Neumeyer, German, Station, Finnish, and uh, Swedish, and Belgian, and Japanese Station. We helped them uh, to support with food and uh, personnel to their stations. It was uh, less expensive than being brought by ship to the coast, and so they used this advantage of logistics. And so that was easy for us to bring people to the continent. And also we, we had at uh, Novo, we had uh, two buzzers to fly around and even to fly to the South Pole. And uh, of course it's uh, 2,000 kilometers one way and uh, you cannot uh, do it without uh, refueling. And you cannot, uh, you cannot get fuel at the South Pole, so we decided to organize a fuel depot in between. So the Buzzlers, uh, with uh, a team of 12 people inside, they could manage 
to go to fuel, uh, fuel depot, refuel, go to South Pole and back without refuel and back to uh, the base. But uh, there was one problem. Uh, we didn't know whether at the refueling place. So uh, we did it two years without anybody uh, relying only of uh, general weather forecast for Antarctic continent. But we decided to set a team of people at the fuel depot, communicating every time before the flight about the weather conditions and uh, visibilities. So uh, one of the flights to the South Pole was uh, pretty dramatic. If uh, early Antarctic logistics and expedition wouldn't help us, because uh, we had nobody at the refueling place, and the weather was not suitable for landing and refueling. So the aircraft continued to the South Pole, and I uh, spoke to Mike Sharp from ALE to support us with fuel at the pole, because we missed this uh, opportunity to refuel our aircraft. And he agreed to support us in exchange of uh, refueling possibilities at uh, 83 degrees for their operations. That was great operation. And also we thought of uh, making a joint expedition. People, uh, for example, start uh, from uh, West Antarctica, from Union Glacier, and they go to South Pole, and they continue to Nova. So it would be uh, Antarctic crossing. Uh, it was not realized. Unfortunately, because in uh, 2012, uh, my boss and the head of uh, ALE, uh, uh, NI, uh, LCI, Antarctic Logistics Center International uh, from Cape Town, and he was my boss also, he passed away. And uh, his partners on the business they uh, didn't want uh, to extend uh, tourism in Antarctica. They wanted only, they were happy only to support scientific programs on the continent. Uh, so, and I quit uh, from the company, doing my uh, work Good morning. in the Arctic. This is just a quick announcement for those who would like to participate. And uh, between this, I also I will be in the uh, made uh, guiding of uh, the Russians' last degree to South Pole, Menholing. So, that's about all with my Antarctic experience. Have you been dealing with the permitting as well as the actual physical logistics or is that... Yeah, I did, I, I did, no, I, I did uh, paperwork for this. Right. Because that sounds like uh, an extensive adventure in itself. Yeah, yeah it is, it is an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> um, all this environmental assessment and uh, all these things, I had to <laughs> fill out the forms and to tell that uh, we had uh, minimum impact. Oh, wait, oh wait, this is yeah. And um, 
getting into the habit of always asking guests to the podcast, what is the most inspiring and the most frightening thing that have happened to you to in, me. An, in Antarctica? Inspiring thing is adventure itself, because uh, I'm inside adventurous pe- uh, person, you know, and uh, frightening, frightening. I wasn't scared that much in my expeditions, but uh, of course, of course, I understood that uh, sometimes you encounter something unknown to me. But I, I was not afraid because I wanted to go beyond my limits. Spirit of a scientist. Yeah. Well, Victor, you are the first Vostoknichi I have met and it has been a privilege travelling and working with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Good evening, everybody. May I have your attention, please? Uh, was it cold uh, today out in Antarctica? That was... No, 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 no. A normal, a normal uh, winter day in Siberia is about minus 40 degrees. Is it cold? Yeah, it's uh, pretty damn cold. Yeah. But no, 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 no. I tell you a short story uh, about how I was in uh, Antarctica. The temperature's a uh, little bit lower than minus 40. Uh, one perfect night, day, night in Antarctica. I was returning from my scientific under snow cave back to my scientific lab. The temperature was uh, pretty cold, I would say, minus 60 degrees, and uh, I increased my pace, and all of a sudden I heard a whisper in my ears. I was a little bit worried and hurried up to the building. A weatherman, seeing my worried face, asked me, have you heard this too? Oh yes, aliens were talking to you. <laughs> yeah, that was the case. Later he explained to me that uh, in these low temperatures, when you exhale air, the moisture containing in the exhaling air freezes in an instant and produces rustle. And uh, polar people they call this phenomenon as whisper of the stars. And it's very interesting uh, that sounds, they sound different. If you want uh, to say sail, you will hear shame instead. So, uh, my presentation today will be about life at the pool of coal. But where is it? <laughs> in Northern Hemisphere, it is in little Siberian village with the name of uh, Onakon. Absolute minimum temperature registered officially was minus 67.8 degrees on February 06, 1933. 
But uh, unconfirmed data shows that the uh, lowest temperature was minus 72 at this point. If you want to have uh, these lashes and uh, this face, girls, please come to Siberia, to America. This place, you see it, uh, you see it on the map, it's uh, Far East in Siberia, also has the biggest gradient in the world between temperatures uh, summer and winter. It is 109 degrees difference. But of course, undisputable uh, record of low temperature belongs to Antarctica, of course. Where at the Russian scientific station, Vostok, Vostok station was called after the ship Vostok, uh, one of the ships of Bellinshausen Lazarev expedition discovered the Antarctica. Station Vostok lies at an elevation of 3,488 meters above sea level. Absolute minimum was registered minus 89 degrees point two in July. And annual average temperatures minus 55. How do you like it? <laughs> the hottest day in summer is uh, minus 13 degrees, the hottest day, but it's very rare at this place. So, but there is uh, another place in Antarctica, it's uh, Dome Argos, where Chinese station, Kunlun station, is settled in 2009. They are on the top of Antarctic Plateau, the highest point of Antarctic Plateau is 4,091 meters above sea level. But they registered only 82.5. Strange, yeah? <laughs> but you know, uh, between 2004 and 2016, a survey from satellites carried out during the night of Antarctica. And this summit revealed that the temperatures lower than 90 degrees below zero could be in Antarctica. All these blue areas on Antarctic Plateau shows the temperatures below. They are in uh, topographical depressions on the high altitudes. And then the great Antarctic night. Yes, great Antarctic night. <laughs> uh, okay. So, satellite survey uh, carried uh, between 2010 and 16 showed that uh, this is Vostok station, you see, and Dome Argus, but the lowest temperature was registered at the elevation 3,900, not uh, 4,000. Because as you know, that uh, cold air goes down. It is very heavy. And uh, 
the absolute minimum at this place registered was uh, minus 94 degrees. This is really something. But still, you know, uh, the place where people live constantly is Vostok Station. And Guinness Book of World Records still considered Vostok to be the pole of the cold. Because uh, satellite is satellite and uh, nobody down there. And uh, meteorologists, they do not believe. So they believe only in equipment placed uh, on the surface. I was wintering at Vostok Station in 1998 and 1990. But uh, first, I want to tell you why uh, Russia put a set a station at this point. You know, in uh, 1955, International Geographical uh, Geophysical Year was announced to concentrate scientific work on Antarctica. And different countries, they wanted to join this scientific study of Antarctica to put their stations on the Antarctic continent. Both uh, the USA and USSR, they wanted to, pl uh, to place station at the South Pole. At the South Pole. But the Russian delegations, delegation arrived to the conference because of visa problems and uh, some other bureaucratic problems later. So, and the place of South Pole was given already to uh, United States. And in this case, uh, Russia decided to place station at the geomagnetic South Pole. And Vostok station is at the place of near geomagnetic South Pole and at the pole of inaccessibility of Antarctica. So, they started the station, Mirling, and it was open in 1956, this station, it is coastal station, and the next task was to go to inland Antarctica, to a geomagnetic pole. The distance was pretty great, it's uh, 1,400 kilometers inside Antarctica. Of course, the Russians, they had lots of experience in the Arctic with low temperatures, and they didn't know what to expect from Antarctica at that time. How are the conditions of snow? They didn't know about crevasses the deep as they are in Antarctica. And they didn't know how it goes. So, but the operation started. And the first 200 kilometers from Mirling, it's a very steep slope. It is covered with numerous crevasses. Sometimes these crevasses, they reach several hundred meters in depth. And this slowed down drastically the progress of the tractor train with equipment to reach the magnetic, geomagnetic pole. So they managed to go only to this place where Pionierska station is.
And this station was opened on uh, 27th May 1956. They had, uh, there was the end of the season, and as you know, uh, the season in Antarctica is uh, from November uh, to February. And after that, it's uh, getting very, very cold, and it's not possible to operate in these areas. I mean, inside, inland Antarctica. So they had to return. The next year, they came back and progressed as far as Komsomolska station. This is about 1,000 kilometers inland. Again, they couldn't achieve the longest distance and to set Vostok station. And only next year they managed and they opened the station, Vostok, at the geomagnetic South Pole. And you will see how hard it is to go to Vostok station and to go inside Antarctic continent. <laughs> and please take into account that the temperature high inland Antarctica was minus 50 and the wind 20-30 uh, meters per second and wind chill factor brings it to minus 70. So the cold was so deep that the tractors, they couldn't progress very fast. And every hour they had to stop and to repair something. And also, you know, the snow is very deep in this area and it is like a sand. So even with white caterpillars it's pretty difficult to progress and sometimes one tractor helps the other tractor to go on. And they had to carry fuel to the station. And uh, by the way, for the return trip from coast to Vostok station and back, they spent two-thirds, two-thirds of fuel. And they have to bring also some provision and fuel for winter. At last they came to the station. It takes about two months one way. And at the station they meet the tractor train, tractor traverse with vodka, it's a Russian tradition. <laughs> so tractor arrived. So time goes and aircraft started to fly to Vostok and personnel, personnel of the station was being brought by aircraft, this kind of, uh, it's uh, illusion 14 aircraft. It uh, resembles a little bit of uh, Douglas. Uh, 
DC-3 aircraft. Very reliable, and but now they do not fly to Antarctica anymore because they are very, very old. They were produced in uh, 1940s. Uh, so, you know now that the station is located uh, very high on the top of the Antarctic Plateau. Elevation is about 3,500 meters. But as for oxygen, to compare with the mountains, this uh, elevation is equal to 4,500 meters above sea level. And people, they take off from Mirny Station, which is at sea level, and in four hours, you are on 4,500 meters. So it's pretty high. And of course, all people, even trained people, uh, they feel mountain sickness a little bit. That's why when people come to Vostok Station, it is prohibited for them to carry cargo and to walk fast, but they cannot walk fast. And I fell it at once also, in spite of the fact that uh, I was climbing uh, high mountains before that. But uh, you have difficulties with uh, bread. And also, at Mirny Station the temperature is uh, minus 1, minus 2, like here. And you come with minus 40. It's summer. Don't forget, this is summer. Minus 40. And we saw the people, uh, they opened the door of the aircraft and we saw the people who spent one year at this station and we saw them in sweaters, some of them without hats and they were happy taking our, our suitcases and the boxes and uh, all this and carried to and fro without any problems. But they were, of course, very well acclimatized after wintering. But what to do with uh, novices who just arrived to this place? Of course. So all the new polar men were asked to come to this maestro. And there is, a, you see, a billiard table. And they set the balls and give you a stick. And if you miss the balls, you drink a glass of vodka and go to sleep. <laughs> you are not ready for work. You sleep, again you get up, again you are brought to here. If you miss, again glass of vodka and go. If you, if you miss three times in a row, you are sent to doctor. Doctor examines you and if needed, he placed you in the barometric chamber. There is barometric chamber for people to adapt to this altitude. So, uh, in most cases, this helps. Uh, but some, uh, sometimes it doesn't. So, the people who uh, do not come through this test they are sent back to coastal station and they continue their work down there. But uh, about 15 years ago there was one case when a person, it's a weatherman, 
who was at the Vostok station, he passed all, uh, all uh, these tests and stayed in the, at Vostok station. And by the end of February, when temperatures drop to minus 70, he got worse and worse. So mountain sickness started to develop. And what to do? The limit for the aircraft to land at this temperature is uh, minus 69. Otherwise, you cannot land on this surface because surface at this uh, snow at this. So it cannot stop. And what to do? They have very little oxygen left at the station, only for 15 days. And they said, send a telegram to Mirny. At that time, that was a, a base, a major, major base for Antarctic exploration. And they had aircraft there, and they were going to. Uh, ship to be loaded and brand, uh, brought back uh, to Russia for some repairs for work for the next year and uh, what to do and they asked the chief pilot and he said oh, of course minus 70 I cannot I cannot fly I I cannot land I can fly and uh, drop some oxygen it is no oxygen uh, but uh, this no help but this is no help. So they asked for weather forecasts and uh, temperatures of the snow, and they reported that is minus 69 degrees. So the pilot took responsibility to fly, but he told people at Vostok, you have to prepare a little bit ice on the top of the snow at the runway, so the people, they made a carcass, metal carcass, and put mattresses on it, filled with diesel fuel, burned it, and started to move it along the runway. And they had been working for three days, but it didn't help. So the pilot decided to fly anyway, if temperature increases, lands and that was a lot for the boy because the weatherman told that the temperature when the aircraft was near the station was 68 so he landed but he couldn't stop and uh, the people from the station they uh, wrapped this uh, person uh, with uh, warm clothes and were running uh, behind the aircraft. The aircraft was moving, not very fast, but they were running 
and they even threw the man into the door. And so immediately the aircraft started to take off and the people watched them and the aircraft ran one kilometer, ran two kilometers, three kilometers. And at last at three kilometers, 700 meters, it started slowly fly up. And I tell you that uh, at Vostok station, the skiway length is 3,500 meters. So it is, uh, that's me. It is <laughs> pretty cold at Vostok. Uh, you see it's uh, average temperature is minus 55. How to survive uh, with this temperature? Uh, so, uh, first of all, you take care about your boots. Because uh, all cold, they goes first from the boots, from your feet. And uh, normally, uh, people use this uh, polar aviation, it uses uh, uh, this kind of boots. Uh, in Russian, they are called unti. Unti. It's leather, leather boot, fur inside, and fur here. But they prove to be not very efficient at Vostok station because you uh, freeze immediately in this kind of boots. So instead, for you. Valenki, in Russian we call it's felt boots. They are very thick, very thick. And if you take Valenki, two sizes or three sizes more than you usually wear, and put on a fur sock and go into Valenki, and also you stick a sole, thick sole, felt sole at the bottom. You can manage this temperature. Yes. Yes. And uh, what about breathing? Of course, with low temperatures uh, below, uh, let's say, minus uh, 50, minus 60, you cannot breathe with the open mouth and nose, because nose freezes immediately, and mouth, you can uh, freeze your lungs. So what, what we do? We have a face mask. At that time, that was very, very, very simple. It's, it was made of fleece, material, it's a kind of fleece. And you have a scarf, you wrap around your face two layers of scarf. And also, it's very important, it's very important, you must have a hood, and it should be pretty long. In this case, hood keeps uh, temperature higher than outside temperature, because heat of your body, uh, creates a microclimate in the hood. Uh, but still, it is pretty cold. <laughs> so, as for uh, jacket and uh, trousers, pants, and uh, it's the normal layer uh, system. It was known at that time before, but uh, we, our jackets, they were not uh, made of uh, synthetic materials at that time 
uh, Russia had no this technology to produce uh, synthetic or down jackets, for example. And our jackets were uh, inside was made of uh, camel wool, which is uh, pretty warm too. On the April 23, polar night starts, and it lasts until April 21. So it's a long polar night. You remember that, uh, or well, I didn't tell you, I tell you now, that the uh, latitude of uh, Vostok Station is uh, 78, almost 79 degrees south. So it's polar night lasts many months. And back in April 1982, at 4 a.m., power plant caught fire. No way to escape, because you can cry, you can shout, you can do whatever you do, but no one can come and help you in this case. And moreover, power plant burned and diesel station stopped working. No radio communication, nothing. What to do? People, 22 people, they stayed at the station and had to survive polar night at these temperatures. That was a real, real problem. No electricity, no heat. And the first thing, they just remembered that there was a a small diesel generator, only one kilowatt. So they started it, it was frozen, but they managed to start it in two hours, and at least they could report to the mainland what happened to the station, otherwise they didn't know. And at the mainland, they thought of something, how to help them, but they couldn't do anything. So, the chief of the station said, okay, at least we have fuel, we have food, and we have to survive during this period. So, temperature in the buildings, these people are sitting in front of the fire thinking of their destiny. And in several hours, temperature inside of the buildings was already minus 20. So the chief of the station said, of course, first of all, we have to save food and medicaments or drugs. So they carried, uh, there, there was one room, a little bit heated, with a small diesel stove, and they put all freezable food there, and uh, drugs. They found the old stoves, diesel stoves, two more, and they could heat three rooms. So all people, they had to stay almost half a year 
only in three rooms, 22 people. And the gradient was amazing. There was ice on the floor, and there was a room at the ceiling. And they had to set a watch to see if the stove is working properly. So it lasted a very, very long time. But fortunately for them, they found under the snow broken diesel station. It was, it was not big, it could produce uh, 20 kilowatts, but that was something. So and they managed to start it in two months. But two months they lived in such conditions. And it is polar night, what to do? But uh, there was a paraffin, paraffin for scientific purposes. And so they made candles. And you can imagine if candle is burning a long time, it produces uh, soot. And every, everything was covered with soot. And uh, people also. And only in two months, when they started this diesel station, they could make a little bit light inside of the building and also they can warm up a little bit better. But people were dirty and all around the station was dirty, even snow. And at Vostok station you get water from the snow. And people, they had to go outside, long outside, in this case, because everything was covered with soup. So they had to bring snow blocks to melt it for water. And even when the generator started to work, they managed to make a bath. And they managed to make the temperature rise it to 100 degrees centigrade at the ceiling. And that was about uh, zero, about freezing on the floor. So what people did, they put on rubber boots and put hot water inside and they could wash themselves at least. So, as I said, winter came to its end and the people were happy that at least they had light all around. No sun yet, but light. Spring has come and the people's spirits, they revived. Because they knew that very soon people come to the station. So they managed to survive during this winter. But of course they had many, many problems because that was very close team. And some people, they didn't believe that they survived. Some people, they did believe that they survived. And uh, the people, they broke or uh, split to several groups. So that, that was not a very good relation between the groups. And uh, even when they were already on the ship going back uh, to Russia, to Soviet Union at that time, there was a quarrel between, uh, between some groups and they didn't speak to each other. And when they sailed, to, uh, when they called in Gran Canaria Island, 
a reporter came from Russia to speak to people and to understand the situation, what happened, because as soon as they arrived to Russia, everyone will disappear immediately. So they want a true story about what happened. So, and during this voyage, two weeks voyage from Gran Canaria to Odessa, uh, he managed to come down the relation between the people, and at least they could make a general photo of the wintering team. So, this is how it is in extreme winter. People have to survive, and they survived. I was a geophysicist at the station, and I, my field of occupation was magnetic variations, uh, polar lights, and ionosphere. So, during the night, people uh, have to do their work. It takes it different from people to people, from uh, different uh, science. Uh, for me, it was about eight hours I was busy with my scientific work. And some people, they had only three or four hours for scientific work. And what to do the rest of the time. Of course, at the station we had a, a big library. And also we had very primitive 15 millimeters films and by that by that time we had already 1000 films so we could <laughs> uh, choose from this collection and uh, every evening we collect uh, we gathered all together at the mess room and watched uh, movies uh, we read books and uh, of course uh, having done already several months at high altitude we felt pretty good and we could do uh, exercises. I was for example working on the bike and did pull-ups and by the way maybe this, uh, this was the altitude I, I could do easily 22 pull-ups and uh, in St. Petersburg, where I live, I could do, at that time, only 16. <laughs> That's good. 20, uh, 22nd of June, it's midwinter celebration. It's a great day for all Antarctic stations. Midwinter. And all Antarctic stations, they exchange telegrams at, uh, at that time, and uh, they congratulate each other with midwinter festivity and of course we have a very big feast at the station and there was a rock band at our station and we sang songs and uh, that was a kind of entertainment also some people they could play guitar and uh, we made some other instrument from a vacuum cleaner and such things, we were happy. And also, and also, you know, uh, we set a very nice table. All delicatesses were put on the table, and also vodka, champagne, 
and that was a great celebration. But of course, uh, we must not forget that outside of the building, the temperature was minus 70 or minus 80. So, but the uh, doctor of the station, to tell the truth, drank a little bit too much and we couldn't find him in the house and we had to search for him outside and we found him in 10 minutes under the building lying in the snow he was not frozen completely but we pulled him in his uh, medical room and did some treatment on him this is the entrance uh, to my scientific cave, as I call it. And uh, you know that the temperature of ice is minus 55 degrees all year round. So in my little cabin, it's hoarfrost frost on the ceiling, and my instrument here, there is a very tiny electrical bulb lighting this place and so the temperature here was not minus 55 but uh, minus 40 so and I had to work with uh, such kind of instruments and the tuning of this instrument is uh, very very specific you can do it only with thin glass so I had to work with minus 40 temperatures with thin glass only and by the way when I came back from Antarctica I had uh, my metabolism changed and I could easily go with one t-shirt with minus one, minus two at Mirmi station and I could work without mittens or gloves below to minus 15 degrees and now I do this for example if it is, of course wind chill is very important if it is windy I put on my glass at uh, minus five or depending on the wind of course but in still weather while skiing is minus 15 it's very good and uh, by the way when i came home i couldn't sleep inside of the room i slept on the balcony yeah my wife was very cross so we had to work in any condition of weather in any season so the, uh, we worked during the night and also you know uh, for me and for weatherman that was every day work outside of the building but once a week all station had to work preparing snow blocks for water also not depending on uh, temperature and not depending on uh, whether is it blizzard if blizzard of course it's not minus 80 it's uh, minus 60 or minus 50 but it's all the same all same shape because uh, because you know you have wind chill you have wind chill it brings again to minus 70 so as i said we had uh, some equipment to do spots And on June 21, 
the first rays of the sun we see. And we wanted to celebrate this first ray of sun on the roof of our building with champagne. So we warmed it inside our jackets and we warmed also our glasses and we filled champagne into the glasses but we couldn't drink it because it was frozen immediately. <laughs> so we dropped this idea and we came back inside of the building and cheered there inside of the building. And the most important, it's also me. <laughs> <laughs> and also, uh, very important for all the polar men, it's uh, banya, it's sauna. Banya is in Russian and sauna is English, sauna. sauna. At, uh, at Vostok Station, uh, we have temperature in sauna uh, plus 120, and outside minus 70, and after this warm temperature we went outside but uh, maybe for a minute or two and you get immediately your hair immediately freeze and it, they become like a hoar frost they stand up and freeze and even bold people we noticed they had some hair so they were on their head like antennas that was funny <laughs> but spring was in a progress and aviation was able to fly and at this, uh, at this year, 1989 international expedition, dog sled expedition Transantarctica started from peninsula and they made the longest route across Antarctica with dog sled. It's from Peninsula, via South Pole, Vostok Station, and Tumirni Station. I will tell about this expedition uh, later in my other presentation. But this is a very long way. And as soon as they had to come to the South Pole Station, we had regular communication with South Pole Station and uh, McDonald's Station and uh, I was the only one who spoke English so I was on communication. Uh, one day the lady at communication asked me, oh Victor, uh, there will be an aircraft, our C-130 aircraft coming to your station with scientific team, Americans and French, uh, French people, what do you want to have as a gift from South Pole? And I consulted with my companions, with my people, and they said, okay, we had been wintering for such a long time and we never saw women. <laughs> so, we, so I said, we want uh, a woman. And they said, okay, okay, no problem. And we were surprised when aircraft came, the crew was all women. And moreover, moreover, they said, excuse us, 
were here for a very short time, but we brought to you inflatable woman. <laughs> lasted only one day. <laughs> so the international team of scientists, American and French scientists, they came to the station because uh, there was a very interesting drilling experiment at Vostok station because ice thickness at Vostok station is about 4,000 meters and they drilled the eyes and took samples of the eyes and uh, French they had a very uh, good laboratory and Americans too French they had laboratory in Grenoble and they studied these eye scores at their equipment and they could tell what weather was at a certain period of time they could date they could date the ice cores. And uh, I will tell in, in more details in uh, my presentation Lake Vostok. Because underneath the station they found a lake, not frozen water. So it's very interesting presentation and I hope you will hear it. Uh, although we have uh, very little time. Uh, but nevertheless International team come, and uh, we were wintering 26 people, and another eight people came to the station, and we were happy about that uh, because even preparing snow blocks, uh, we had to use a jack saw, but they brought uh, electric saw, so efficiency of this work was much, much better. So these are the drilling stations of Vostok station. And I, as I told you, they found unfrozen lake underneath the ice of Vostok station. So this is the procedure of preparing snow and this how it is done with the help of equipment. <laughs> and can you imagine, we had to prepare snow and there was a flashlight pointed on the snow during the night and the music was playing. Okay, and uh, International Dog Sled Expedition at last came to Vostok Station. By the way, I tell that uh, when this expedition came to South Pole Station, 
they were not allowed to go to the station because scientific community does not support any non-governmental organization, non-governmental expeditions. They were not allowed to go to the station. The only person who was allowed to go to the station was uh, Viktor Bayarsky from Russia because uh, he was like a diplomat and he was invited. But uh, he ignored his visit and uh, he wanted to be in solidarity with other team. But at Vostok station they were met like heroes and we made, we pre prepared a sauna for them and also there was a, a concert for them prepared and they stayed and they stayed instead of three days they stayed one week at our place. <laughs> and their further way back, uh, back to Mirny station was a little bit easier than the previous track uh, because uh, we sent our tractors in front of the teams and they followed uh, the tracks of the tractors and sometimes uh, during their night they could join uh, the drivers and they could sit and talk together and I tell you very short story what happened just three days before, uh, before they came to Mirny station. There was a heavy, heavy blizzard, but the team stayed in the tents, of course. And uh, the drivers, they invited people to come to their cabins to celebrate a little bit. And uh, they stayed there maybe for half an hour or one hour and they noticed that a Japanese uh, member of the expedition, Keizo Funatsu, uh, was not there and they came to the tent, he was not there too and this is blizzard, you can see nothing uh, beyond five meters and they started uh, search party and they roped up all together and they started to search for him. They couldn't. And after five hours of searching, uh, the snowstorm was heavier and heavier, they couldn't find him. So they dropped it for several hours just to have rest for them. And they resumed searching in eight hours. And when they made the last search and they shouted Keizo, Keizo, Keizo and there was an answer Keizo answered and they came to him, he was covered with snow completely and when he asked him what happened and he said that I went out of the tent and lost my direction in this blizzard and I thought that I should go this direction according to the wind and he couldn't uh, find the cabin in uh, 100 steps and he decided not to walk anymore and just to stay in this place he had a leatherman tool with him and he dug the snow a kind of a cave and he was lying there 
covered with snow. The temperature was not, uh, at that time, was not uh, very cold. It was minus 15. And at, least, and at least he was covered with snow and could warm himself up. And later he told that when he heard a cry, he thought that that was God speaking to him. <laughs> he couldn't expect people around. He thought that he is lost forever. But that was the case when you travel in blizzard. So take care about traveling in blizzard. And uh, not concerning this station, but uh, at another station, Novolazarevsk, I, I went at, at another station, it's called a coastal station. There was one episode also uh, like this, more or less. We have buildings, and uh, one building was uh, a kitchen and dining room. The other building was uh, radio room, radio building. It was 20 meters between, between them, and there was a rope between the buildings, but it had some gap in between for the tractors to be able to go. And uh, one day there was radio communications with families, and uh, the cook, he never went outside during winter, he didn't know he was sitting by the stove in very warm conditions, and he was called to radio room, and he went, but he didn't come there. In half an hour we started to worry what happened, and we also started the rescue party, and we searched him, roped up, of course, and we found him 10 meters away, uh, from the trail, and he was sitting, and we saved him, but uh, he was not frozen, of course. The temperature was not that bad, minus 5, but uh, it, it was blowing, minus 20, no, 20, 25 meters per second length, it's really something. And he was sitting. We rescued him, and when he came to his kitchen, he said, I will never go outside. <laughs> It's not a place for me. So, Vostok Station, how it looks like. Goodbye, Vostok. We fly to Mirny. It's a five hours flight to the coast. And we were happy coming back. Okay, thanks for your attention. In response to a question from Erica, I don't think there were any indigenous Antarcticans when European nations began exploring the far south. I mentioned in an early episode that I can easily imagine people turning up on subantarctic islands, or given the right combination of storms to see them through the vortex winds surrounding the continent, wrecking on Antarctic shores themselves, but there's no evidence of such events come to light to date. There is a lot of coast that no one's run a multi-beam sonar over, and I suspect a lot of wrecks are yet to be found around Antarctica. But until the evidence turns up, my imaginings are exactly that. 
while I recounted in episode 24 that Norwegian biologist Nikolai Hansen occupies the first grave in Antarctica. Human remains of a Chilean woman were found near a former sealers camp at Yamana Beach, Livingston Island, between 1985 and 1993. Anthropologists think she was of mixed Indigenous Chilean and European genetic heritage. The dearth of the accompanying signs of habitation archaeologists expect when examining a former settlement indicates this was likely a solitary discarded corpse rather than a member of an Indigenous population. The skull and femurs have been dated to the early decades of the 19th century, predating Hansen's demise by a clear half-century, but keeping my earlier statement technically correct, the best kind of correct, because the bones of the Chilean woman were found in the South Shetland Islands rather than on the continent, and weren't so much in a grave as strewn about the beach. Given the maritime trades concurrent with the range of dates placed on the bones, it's likely the woman was travelling with a European sailing ship, and you can speculate as to why, and that she was put ashore, dead or dying, as a means to prevent illness spreading among the vessel's crew. Most accounts of people in Antarctica prior to Cook are fictional, and fall into two major camps. There's the whimsical speculation sort, on display in spades in Monica Schillat's Antarctic Beastery, in which she illustrates and writes about Antarctic wildlife as though a band of 13th century monks were the first to encounter them. Then there's the what are these pyramids doing beneath Antarctic ice conspiracy theories, hollow earthers and flat earthers, who've populated Antarctica variously with ancient Egyptians, secret service agents killing or paying off anyone who gets too close to the secrets of the spherical earth agenda, and Nazis in flying saucers. Their evidence mostly comprises gainsaying any evidence contrary to their hypotheses as fake news and badly composited images or drawings of human habitations under the ice. Often these incoherent ideas about the nature of our planet come coupled to so many unwarranted assumptions that they'd see old William of Ockham ditch the razor and fire up Ockham's helisaw. Look up helisaws for up to seven times the daily recommended intake of awesome. These folks will occasionally find a mountain that looks a bit more pyramidal than average and spuriously claim that it's an exact match for the proportions of the pyramids of Egypt, or the Aztecs, or the Mayans, or whosoever's pyramids are the nearest eyeball match, ignoring proportional deviations from their ideal and geological explanations for these structures because, in their minds, science is only good when it's supporting their hypothesis. Science constituting so many shills and planet-wide cabals bent on something never quite articulated when its conclusions run counter to their preferred narrative. Someone recently alerted me to a rectangular iceberg as though it was something special, and therefore evidence of aliens. But unless it's got the precise ratio of 1 to 4 to 9, I don't want to know. I'm not discounting that it's made by aliens, I just want nothing to do with the sort of aliens that can't manufacture their signposts, the degree of precision I demand in any interstellar ambassadors. They can keep their punk-ass wobbly margins and non-integer square values. Fucking amateurs. I'm starting to suspect morons from outer space was a documentary accidentally released as a feature film. 
I recently put together a short presentation called Antarctica in Fiction, touching on the same pop culture moments as discussed in episode 7, adding in Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, a poem inspired, in part, by the descriptions of the Southern Ocean ice brought back to Britain by William Wales, astronomer aboard the Resolution under James Cook, and who tutored Coleridge in mathematics. I finished the presentation with a brief rounding out of how Antarctica features in the various Flat Earth and Hollow Earth models, highlighting the various colleagues who worked far inland in Antarctica, and in one case at the South Geographic Pole itself, who could discount those models based on first-hand experience. Tacitly calling one friend and colleague a liar for their assertion that they lived and worked at 90 degrees south without seeing or plunging into any 500 kilometre diameter holes leading to an inner planet while there. A member of the audience later took me to task over my dismissing the hollow earth model with the far from compelling evidence that the UFOs are going somewhere, Matt. You hear that? That's William of Ockham pre-flighting his helicopter. We don't have any evidence of pre-European occupation in Antarctica. It's not impossible that people could reach there and survive there prior to Cook's voyages, but we don't have any evidence that they did, and could and did, a very different beasties when we contemplate human endeavour. I could be the world's greatest pianist, but unless I can demonstrate that's the case, I shouldn't expect anyone to pay me commensurate to that level of talent. Pointing out that you can't demonstrate that I'm not the greatest pianist in the world puts the burden of evidence in the wrong place, but that seems to be how a lot of flat earth and hollow earth proponents try to make their arguments work, their output comprising failures both in reasoning and rhetoric. I look forward to finding both a flat earth and a hollow earth proponent among my audience one day and pitting them against each other while the rest of us enjoy the popcorn. Take care and appreciate your coffee.